right. Good morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is where we're going to be. Uh, there is no shame in the room if you need to look at the table of contents. Uh, we totally welcome that. Um, the best way to find it is open up to the middle of your Bible. Um, if you find Psalms or Proverbs, just go to your right. Um, it is right after Proverbs. You can't miss it. Um, if you're on a device, you can uh, find it a little more easily. Um, but we are going to um, jump into a new study on a new book of the Bible. And uh, it's an Old Testament book. And we'll talk about um, what it um, means, how we go about reading it. And um, we're going to be in it for a good little bit. Um, we just finished a study in Galatians. And uh, it's a joy to jump into a new book of the Bible. And... Uh, I think during this series we'll explain why uh, we study books of the Bible, but for the sake of time today, I'm not going to jump into that. Um, but I do want to, before I read this text, um, I know Chris taught last week, and he kind of jokingly said that, um, you know, he picked these two dates on the calendar, and, you know, it turned out that it was Father's Day, and it was um, self-control, and uh, that the Lord providentially kind of arranged that. And uh, I would affirm that um, because I got to, I was serving in kids last week, but I got to listen to, uh, to Chris's sermon this week. And uh, the man is um, being used by the Lord uh, to teach us, to teach our students. And I just wanted to publicly thank him for uh, the work he put into that. He's had a busy month, y'all. He uh, spoke at student camp and then got invited to speak at a camp that he went to as a child and then jumped into kids camp and uh, pulled an all-nighter with some of our uh, seniors and then spoke on a Sunday. So uh, um, he probably, looking back, wouldn't have planned it that way, but he was faithful to the job. And... Uh, the Lord is using him in a lot of ways, and I just wanted to publicly thank him because he definitely um, used that sermon to, uh, to shape me uh, more like his son. So uh, I needed to hear it, and I'm grateful that Chris put in the time for that. So um, hopefully by now you've found Ecclesiastes. If not, hopefully someone around you can help you find it. But uh, we are just going to look at um, the first two verses and give you kind of the context, the setting of the book, uh, lay some ground rules for how we're going to go through and study this book and really just cover, okay, what's this book about before we get into the, the verse by verse um, study of it? What in the world is going on in this book? Because um, I'm going to read these two verses for you and you're going to go, okay, uh, this could be interesting. So um, if you'll stand, we're going to read the first two verses of Ecclesiastes and then we will dive into our study together. Here is Ecclesiastes chapter 1, uh, verses 1 and 2. It says this, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, and hear the words of the preacher. He says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, um, God, we're grateful um, that in your wisdom, God, that we get to know you by your word. In your spirit, God, God himself spoke these words into existence. God, that you breathed them. Um, you inspired the human authors that wrote them. They wrote every single word that you wanted them to write, and every word of it is true. And God, I pray that as we begin this study, um, that, Father, we would look back um, weeks in at all that you've done. God, to give us wisdom. And to make us more like your son. God, to help us leverage our lives uh, for what matters most and what will matter in the end. Um, so God, teach us, um, humble us. And uh, God, I pray that you would soften our hearts um, throughout this series to, to embrace some hard truths and some hard realities. And uh, Father, be with us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
You can have a seat. So, um, there was a man uh, named Steve Callahan. Um, he was a naval architect, um, and in 1981, he was sailing alone in the Atlantic Ocean, and his boat hit something. Um, he still doesn't really know what it was. He thinks it was a whale, um, but it punctured his boat, and he began to sink. And um, Steve was able to gather some supplies the way he was an engineer. So the way he constructed his boat um, allowed it to kind of slowly sink. And uh, so he was able to get some materials and some supplies and get on his life raft. And unbeknownst to him, uh, what he thought would be a couple hours, maybe a couple days, um, he gathered some food, um, gathered some materials, and he spent 76 days um, alone on a life raft in the Atlantic Ocean and shot flares at ships coming by and no one saw the flares, went through all of his food reserves, began to start catching fish and um, started getting, you know, salt water and, you know, sunlight sores all over his body, lost a third of his body weight. But what got him to shore? Well, Steve Callahan was able to take these two pencils and kind of wire them together and he made a sextant. And a sextant is just a nautical tool that allows you to kind of measure the distance from the, the sun to the horizon and get your bearings on where you are. And he was able to, to make a tool that allowed him to, to see these fixed realities in the universe and leverage them to, to find the right current and to get where he wanted. And he eventually kind of floated into the shores of Guadalupe and a fisherman found him and took him to a hospital. Took him about six weeks to recover um, from all of his injuries. And then he wrote a book about the experience and made millions of dollars. And now he's doing just fine. Um, but the reason I tell you that story is because that's what wisdom is. Wisdom is being able to, to identify and see and know these fixed realities in the universe. How is the world made? How does the world function? What are these realities that are set and that are fixed and that are true? And being able to leverage those to navigate the often rough waters of this world. That's what wisdom is. And we are beginning a book called Ecclesiastes, and it is, um, it is wisdom literature. It's part of the, the three wisdom books in the scriptures. The three wisdom books are Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and Job, are often known as the wisdom literature. Um, but if you want to know just kind of how your Bible is set up, um, there's 39 books in the Old Testament. There's 17 of them that are historical. If you want to read just the historical plot of the Old Testament, you read Genesis through Esther. And then there's 17, there's 17, 5, and 17. There's 17 historical, and then there's 17 prophetical. From Jeremiah all the way to Malachi, there's 17 prophetical books. And those are written by these prophets who God raised up within those first, the timeline of the first 17 books to speak on behalf of God. And then sandwiched in between these two sets of 17, you get the five poetical books, which is um, Song of Solomon, Proverbs, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, and Job. So you've got 17, 5, and 17. And we're going to look at one of the wisdom books. Now, here's the difference um, between wisdom literature and other literature in the Bible. Because each book, the genre of the book determines how we read it. And what do I mean by that is, is specific genres have different rules based on how you, you approach the scriptures and, and the, the hope that you have as you read them and uh, the, the way in which you read them. And what I mean by this is uh, Proverbs, for example. Um, the late Adrian Rogers says that if you read a proverb like it is a promise, he said you will lose your faith. That if you treat the Proverbs like they're promises, 
like they're 1,000% always going to be true every single time, then he will, you'll lose your faith. And he gives the example of Proverbs 22, 6. Uh, many of you know it. It says, train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. If you read that proverb like it's a promise, you will lose your faith because every parent in here can labor and invest and do everything they can to train up a child, and there's no guarantee that when they get older, they won't depart and walk away. And maybe it's for a season, um, and by God's grace, um, he'll bring them back, but there's no guarantee. It is a general wisdom principle. It means that generally this is going to be true, but not, it's not a promise that every single time it will be true because we all know children who were raised up in the faith and have departed. And by God's grace, we all know people who weren't raised up in the faith. Many of you are in this room and God sovereignly intervened and now you're walking in the way that you should go. Amen? It is a proverb that is generally true. Now, there's probably not a, uh, you know, just if, if it's only up to us, there's not a huge chance that if we don't train up our children in the way that they should go, that when they're older, they, they'll walk the way they, they should go, right? It is a general wisdom principle. Does that make sense? There are many proverbs that talk about how the diligent hands will rule and those who work in all seasons will have plenty of bread and how the lazy won't have any. Um, but we all know people who work really hard and have integrity and go to their job every day and they just don't have much. And we also know people who don't work hard at all, right? And they've got a lot. And we're going, what in the world? But does that mean that the wisdom principle is not true? No, it is generally true that if you work hard, if you're diligent, if you go to your job with integrity, that you will have plenty. You will have what you need. But there are exceptions to the rule. So these aren't promises. These are wisdom principles. That's what Proverbs are. A proverb is a proverb. A promise is a promise. A parable is a parable. And we talked about how those aren't just lessons about agriculture and, and leadership, right? They're stories about the kingdom of God. A precept is a precept. A prophecy is a prophecy. And we have to know the genre of what we're reading because it will inform how we approach it. Does that make sense? So what's the difference between Proverbs and Ecclesiastes? Well, Proverbs gives you lots and lots of these little couplets, right? These, these wisdom principles, these little wisdom nuggets that are generally true about life. Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature, but instead it has some Proverbs within it, but instead of giving you these wisdom principles, um, Solomon, who wrote Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon, he takes a different approach from Ecclesiastes. And instead of giving you these wisdom principles, he just gives us harsh realities about life, the cold, hard truth about life. And many of you have probably heard about the book of Ecclesiastes, that it's not the most chipper book we've ever read, right? Why? Because he gives us cold, hard, the nitty-gritty truth about life, these harsh realities about the world that we live in. But if we understand them, if we learn them, if we embrace them, and if we figure out, okay, what is the meaning of this life, which is what the book's going to talk about, What's, how does the world function? What are these, these fixed realities in the universe? That there's great wisdom that can be found as we approach these things. Does that make sense? So I want you to see the difference between the two. In the book of Ecclesiastes, um, you, you can see it in the branding behind me, um, is all about life under the sun. There are other books in the Bible that talk about the spiritual realm and the eternal realm and the life after this. And all of those things are true if it's in Scripture. But this book is not dealing with those. 
It is dealing specifically with what do we do with life down here in this broken, fallen world. The, um, God is mentioned in this book multiple times, but it's interesting um, that the word, the intimate word for God, Yahweh, in the Old Testament is not mentioned in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, each time God is mentioned, it's the word Elohim, which is just the general word for God. And you see the writer, um, he mentions God, and, and it'll honestly show up in his conclusion. Um, the Jewish law is not specifically mentioned at all in the book. It's mentioned kind of in passing in chapter 5. But this book is specifically, it's hyper-focused on what do we do with life down here under the sun. It is one of the most apologetic books in the scriptures because it, it deals with the meaning of life. And anyone is welcome. The skeptic, the one who's trying to figure out this life, the one who's trying to find fulfillment in all sorts of places, you are welcome here. In fact, if you know someone, I would encourage you, who's a skeptic about faith, who is trying to, to attain all the, the, you know, just kind of suck all the meaning out of this life that they can and all the different, um, you know, different parts of this world under the sun, I would encourage you, invite them to church because Solomon's gonna talk about all of them. He's gonna talk about money, possessions, pleasure, sex, you name it, everything that we could ever go after, legacy, personal achievement, personal success, human progress, justice, he's gonna talk about all of them and put them in their proper place with reference to, to who God is and what we are made for. Does that make sense? So he's gonna talk about some harsh things and we're gonna dive into it together, but we want to start with, okay, who was Solomon? Um, Solomon was one of the sons of David and David had multiple sons. Um, uniquely for Solomon though, he was actually one of the sons of David and Bathsheba. And we won't dive into that story this morning. Uh, fun fact, we actually taught your children that in uh, kids' ministry last week, so we're not shying away from some of the hard things. Um, but David committed adultery with this woman Bathsheba, had her husband killed, and their first son dies. Um, you can read about that in 2 Samuel 12. Um, but Solomon was their second son. And God makes a promise to David, even in the midst of David's sin, even in the midst of David's rebellion, uh, we've talked about this throughout the Galatians series that God will never deviate from his word. If God makes a promise, he will bring it to pass and he will be just and merciful all while um, fulfilling his word. And God made a promise to David and I wanna read it to you just so you can see kind of the circumstances around this. Um, but it's interesting when Jesus shows up on the scene, God made a promise all the way back in Genesis 3 that he was gonna redeem humanity through the seed of Adam and Eve. And the Bible, the Old Testament just traces the seed from Genesis on, we go from Adam and Eve to Noah, from Noah to Abraham, from Abraham to David, and from David all the way down to Jesus. And Matthew opens up Genesis chapter, or Matthew opens up Matthew chapter one with a genealogy. And he goes from Abraham all the way to Jesus. And he mentions Solomon. But interestingly enough, he doesn't say um, David and Bathsheba. He says, who is the son of Uriah's wife? Um, that, you know, in the, the throes of history, um, David's sin, it's kind of a jab at David. David's sin is always gonna be recognized. God doesn't, you know, cover up David's sin. It's right there. Hey, Solomon was the son of that man that you killed. And it's right there in the genealogy. The, the son of Uriah's wife. And we see God not cover up David's sin, but we see God be just to punish David's sin, but he's also merciful. And God is always going to fulfill his promises that through David, would come someone who would redeem humanity, who would crush the head of the serpent, which is Jesus. 
And we see God explain this to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So I want you to see this. It says this. Um, this is God talking to David through the prophet Nathan. All right? So this is God speaking through a human prophet to David. And he says this. Um, this is kind of in the middle of this prophecy. We'll jump in in verse 12. It says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. There's going to be an offspring that's coming from your line. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you, and your house and your kingdom, uh, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision Nathan spoke to David. So David gets this prophecy from the Lord and says, you're gonna have a descendant, he's gonna be king, and he says, his throne is going to endure forever and I'm going to love him as a father and he will love me like a son. He's going to build me a house. And Solomon does all of these things. Solomon becomes king after David gives up his reign after 40 years. Solomon reigns for 40 years and he builds a temple for the Lord in Jerusalem. And in Solomon's reign, the kingdom of Israel is at its peak. It's literally as good as it ever was. I mean, the climax of the, the reign of Israel happens under Solomon's reign. The temple is built and people, kings, queens, people come from far and wide to hear the wisdom of Solomon. They come from all over the place. Why did that happen? Well, we'll see what happens. I want you to see Solomon's heart when he enters into um, the office as king. David dies, Solomon becomes king, and you can read about this in 1 Kings 3 and 2 Chronicles 1. Uh, we'll look at 2 Chronicles 1 for just a second. And this is the circumstances around which Solomon becomes king. Look at his heart, look at his humility. He says this in 2 Chronicles 1. It says, in that night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, ask what I shall give you. Imagine having that happen. God appears to you and says, what do you want, Right? And Solomon said to God, you have shown great and steadfast love to David my father and have made me king in his place. O Lord God, let your word to David my father be now fulfilled. For you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people. For who can govern this people of yours, which is so great? And how does God respond? God answered Solomon, because this was in your heart. You've not asked for possessions, wealth, honor, or the life of those who hate you and have not even asked for long life, but have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may govern my people over whom I made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. I will also give you riches, possessions, and honor such as none of the kings had who were before you and none after you shall have the like. So Solomon came from the high place at Gibeon, from the tent of meeting to Jerusalem, and he reigned over Israel. Now notice Solomon's request. And I don't know about your prayer life, um, but I think if there's one application we can learn just from this text alone, what do you pray for? Notice Solomon's heart. It's, Lord, you've been gracious, you've been loving, you've given me a responsibility. Lord, I need wisdom to be able to leverage what you've given me and manage what you've given me for your glory and for the good of the people around me. Notice he doesn't ask for wisdom for his own self-exaltation. He says, Lord, give me the wisdom to take the things you've given me and to leverage them for your glory. 
Let me ask you this. When's the last time that any of us have prayed for that? If there's something I would encourage you based on this text to to add to your prayer life, it's Lord, give me the wisdom to take all the things you've given me, my family, my job, my business, our school, my children. Give me the wisdom to take the things that you've given me and to leverage them for your glory. Because if you you want my opinion, left to my own devices, I will royally mess them up, won't I? Left to my own flesh, my own intelligence, my own earthly human wisdom, my own smarts, I am going to royally mess this up. So God, daily, give me the wisdom to leverage my influence as a parent or a grandparent, to leverage my business, to leverage my retirement, to leverage all that you've given me and to use it for your glory. That's what Solomon prays. And the Lord says, because you asked for that, I'm gonna give you that. I'm gonna give you wisdom that no one has ever seen and no one will ever see. Solomon is the second wisest man to ever live apart from God himself in human flesh, in Jesus. The wisest man to ever live. And he begins to to use the wisdom from the Lord to manage the kingdom of Israel in a way that would glorify him and be good for the people that he's been entrusted to lead. And it works. And Israel is prosperous, a temple is built, and people come from far and wide to see the, the wisdom of Solomon. I would encourage you to pray this. And like I said, not for your own glory and your own advancement and your own recognition, but to be faithful to the Lord for what he's given you. James tells us in James 1, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask. And God gives generously. He says, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Make this a part of your prayer life. Lord, give me the wisdom to, to manage what you've given me for your glory and for your kingdom, and for your name, not mine, because I'm going to mess this up. And to, to what end does it matter if I leverage all that God's given me to make my name great? Amen? What matters in the end? When have I just used the stuff that the Lord's given me to make me look good for the 60, 70, 80 years by God's grace if he allows me to live that long? How does that benefit the world or the kingdom of God for all eternity? And we see people come far and wide. In fact, you can see this in 1 Kings 10. Uh, We won't read about it, but the queen of Sheba comes and she quizzes Solomon, asks him all these questions. She sees the people in his kingdom, his subjects, that they're all happy, that everyone's prosperous. And the, the text literally says it takes her breath away, that she just marvels at the, the prosperity of Israel under Solomon's wisdom and his leadership. Um, and now, you know, like success often does, because the nation was so successful, um, Solomon also turns to some not so good things. Um, but Solomon had all of the wisdom, he had all of the money, he had all of the possessions, he had all of the notoriety, all of the success, all of the personal achievement that you could ever dream of. He had all of the houses, all of the luxuries, more money than anyone's ever had um, in human existence. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. We'll park there for a second and give you a, just a quick snippet about scripture. Um, just because it's mentioned in the Bible doesn't mean the Bible is condoning it, all right? Just because something is mentioned in scripture, and I'll show you in just a second, where in nowhere does the Bible condone polygamy and say that it's a good thing for society or for a man especially or for women. Nowhere. In fact, this is actually described as a part of Solomon's downfall. But Solomon, the the success, um, all of the notoriety, all of the attention allows him to kind of deviate or he chooses to deviate um, 
from wisdom. And most theologians think that Solomon um, is writing after what we'll read in just a second, but after the season of his life where he departs um, from soul devotion to the Lord, where all of these different wives and concubines and things kind of um, pull him into worship of other pagan gods and building temples and buildings for these other pagan gods. And many theologians think that this book is after Solomon's full assessment of life under the sun. Hey, I've chased all the other things, all the other deities, all the other religions, all, the, all the, the wives you could ever want, all the money you could ever want, all the status you could ever achieve. I've had it all. And he opens the book with vanity of vanities. All is vanity, right? He opens with everything is vanity. And we'll talk about that word in just a second. But I just want you to see that just because it's described in the Bible doesn't mean the Bible is prescribing it. Does that make sense? There are some things in the Bible that are prescriptive, the commands, right? That they're prescribing things for us to do. There are other things in the Bible that are just descriptive, that are describing how a situation was. They're not commanding humanity and you know, God's children to do these things. I'll give you one example really fast of a, a time that this was totally botched. Um, there was a pastor who was teaching um, at Christmas time and the Christmas story and said that because Mary and Joseph took Jesus and they wrapped him in swaddling clothes and they put him in a manger, um, that biblically parents should not let their children sleep in their beds when they're infants. And obviously we all kind of look and go, that's weird. Yeah, because the Bible's not, Luke wasn't prescribing parenting tips, right? He was describing the situation around Jesus's birth, that he was gentle and humble and lowly all from the moment of his birth. But Luke wasn't giving parenting advice when he was writing Luke chapter two. He wasn't prescribing how you're, you know, where your child's supposed to sleep. He was describing where Jesus slept as a baby. Does that make sense? Some are describing, some are prescribing. This is what we're about to read is the Lord is describing um, the beginning of Solomon's downfall. It's in 1 Kings 11. I'll just read a couple of verses to you. But you see, even in the midst of Solomon's sin, the Lord says, I'm a faithful God, I'm gonna keep my promise, I'm gonna be just, but I'm also gonna be merciful and I'm never gonna turn back on my word. There's never a plan B. The cross was always plan A. And God said, I made a promise that the seed of the woman is gonna crush the head of the serpent and I'm gonna continue to use your line. But there's consequences because of your sin. I'm just, but I'm also merciful. If you look at it in 1 Kings chapter 11, it says this. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of uh, Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love, right? The Lord said, you shall not do it. Solomon clung to them. Um, he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after um, Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place uh, for Chemish, the abomination of Moab. Look at how God describes these other pagan gods as abominations. And for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their God. 
And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and I will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. You see God be just and merciful. Hey, there's consequences to your sin, but I'm gracious and merciful and I will not change my word. The kingdom's coming down. It's coming down through your, when it's in your son's hands, but I'm gonna preserve a remnant. I'm gonna preserve a tribe. And which tribe does he preserve? Judah. Who comes from the tribe of Judah? Jesus. Amen? I'm just, but I'm merciful. At the cross, we see the justice of God towards sin, and we see the mercy of God invited to all people to come and receive salvation and forgiveness of their sin through Jesus. And we see Solomon mess up. And now we have the teachings. We have the writings of someone who has all the wisdom, all the fame, all the money, which is good that he's writing this and not me, right? Because if I get up here and tell you that you know, money's never gonna satisfy you and human progress is never gonna satisfy you and that job's never gonna satisfy you, you would respond with, yeah, easy for you to say because you just don't have enough, right? But you can't say that. Why? Because Solomon's saying it. And he had all the wisdom in the world and all of the money and all of the recognition, all of the status, all of the trophies on the mantle. He had it all. Amen. So let's look at what he has to say. Verse one, it says the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So we have the words of the preacher and the word there in Hebrew is koholet. And it it means gatherer or teacher, um, Preacher is a good translation. Um, Ecclesiastes is, is a variation of the form ecclesia, which is where we get the word church. So you've got this gathering and you've got this gatherer speaking to the gathering, this teacher instructing the, the gathered people. Um, most theologians, though, don't think it's, it's like pastor congregation um, because he's talking about life under the sun. He doesn't mention God hardly at all. Um, he mentions you know God in general, not God intimately. So most people think it's more of a philosophy teacher kind of setting where you've got Solomon talking about the meaning of life to any who would listen, to any who would gather around and gain his wisdom. He said, I've seen it all, I've searched it all. Let me tell you about the meaning of life. Let me tell you some of the harsh realities about this life under the sun. Let me tell you all that I've learned about human effort and toil and striving and work and money and pleasure and everything in between. Come all who would hear wisdom. And then what does he say about everything under the sun? He says, vanity, verse two, of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And this is the opening of the book and this is the closing of the book in chapter 12. He bookends this entire letter with everything is vanity. Now, this word, this verse, um, Ecclesiastes 1, 2, and the Hebrew is eight words and five of them are vanity. So what does it mean, right? Some of you are like, I only thought vanity was like that furniture piece, you know, at my grandma's house with the the mirror and the desk and those kind of things. What is vanity? 
um, he's not referring to a piece of furniture. Um, the Hebrew word there is hebel, and it, he's talking about, um, it, it essentially means fruitless or meaningless or in vain. Um, the word actually at, at its core means vapor or wind. Um, it means dust. Um, it's the same word that the psalmist used in uh, Psalm 139 and Psalm 144 to describe, it says, the Lord's made our life a mere handbreadth, a mere vapor. Um, James, in James 4, says, what is your life? You're like a mist, you're like a vapor that's here for a second and gone the next. You can't grab it, you can't hold it, it's without substance. It's fleeting, it's here for a moment, and then it's gone, and you can't catch it, right? Any of you have a good wind collection at home? Right? You, you just can't. Notice I didn't say vapor collection because we live in 2023 and some people do. But, um, but no one has a good wind collection at home, do you? Right? You can run after it. It's elusive. You chase after it. You get there. You try to grab it and there's nothing. And he, he looks at all of life and he opens with, here's what the teacher has to say about life under the sun. In and of itself, he says, vanity of vanities. Now notice the superlative there, vanity of vanities. Like, that's a little confusing. It's like saying king of kings. What does that mean? It's the greatest of all kings, Lord of lords. Jesus is the Lord of lords. He's the one true Lord over all the earthly lords. Um, holy of holies in the temple, right? It's the most holy place that you could lay your feet on. And he's saying vanity of van meaningless of meaningless is life under the sun. And this is the subject of the book. This is it. This book's gonna deal with all the things we've mentioned. Pleasure, human progress, work, parenting, marriage, materialism, life, legacy, relationships. And Solomon says, after my assessment, all of them are meaningless in and of themselves. Here is life under the sun, totally meaningless. And this book is gonna deal, yes, welcome to Mission Carnival. We're really glad you're here. Uh, hope you enjoy the exposition of the word. Um, but th this book is gonna deal with questions uh, like why is there injustice? Why do Jesus-loving people get cancer and die young and um, have to live with suffering? And why does the atheist who doesn't care about God seem to be prospering? Um, why can I do everything, quote, right and something happen to me and I lose everything? Um, why do we all die and lose everything? Naked we came into the world and naked we will return, right? What are we looking for? What are we striving for? Why do we strive and do everything we can to be immortalized in this life and we're quickly forgotten? Right? Mark Twain said, the world will lament you for an hour and forget you for forever. Why do we strive and strive and strive to be remembered? And then even those that we think will be immortalized forever, you know, take an athlete, LeBron James. He might be immortalized a little bit longer than some of us, but he will be forgotten one day. And those that vaguely remember his name in a record book will just remember him for playing a game. What is the meaning of all of this? Why do men and women do evil things? Why do the righteous suffer and the wicked seem to be rewarded? Why do we eat, sleep, rinse, repeat, here for a moment, gone the next, cut our grass every week? Why does every Monday seem to come around with its own troubles? We strive, we work, we toil, and we soon to be forgotten. Brokenness in this world. What is the point of all of this? How do we live under the sun in this broken world that does not cooperate? That's what Solomon is going to get after. And he says, his assessment from the very beginning is life in and of itself down here under the sun will ultimately 
not bring you any lasting meaning. There is not a job. There is not an achievement. There is not a person, single people, married people, student people. There's not a person that you could ever meet that will give you ultimate meaning down here in this life. No one's going to complete you. Um, as romantic as that is, God gives us great gifts in marriage. But my wife and I are still broken and incomplete. And she didn't complete me. And my goodness, I did not complete her. Right? I have nothing to add to her that would ever complete her. Right? And oftentimes I feel like I just slow us down a little bit. But she's gracious and forgives me anyways. Um, But here's the deal. There is no experience, no person, no drug, no event, no school you're going to go to, no class that's going to enlighten you, no possession, no amount of money. There is no new thing. There is nothing under the sun that will ever give us ultimate meaning. Man, left to our own devices, is ultimately doomed under the sun, hoping for what we cannot find. And here's the good news as we begin this journey through Ecclesiastes together. The good news of the gospel. The bad news is nothing under the sun will ever give you ultimate meaning. The good news is, is you weren't made for anything under the sun. You weren't. You weren't made for anything in this life to satisfy you. The good news of the gospel is you were made to know God. C.S. Lewis says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, The only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And hear the wisdom of Solomon is there's nothing in and of itself in this earth that could ever satisfy your soul. And the good news of the gospel is it was never meant to. And here's the good news of Jesus is the one who made the heavens and the earth humbled himself and became a man. And he placed himself under the sun. Why? So that you and I can know him. And that's what you were made for. I don't know if you've ever been told why you were created, but you were created by God himself to know him. That's where you find ultimate meaning. You were created to know God and to believe him and to walk with him. That's where you find your ultimate identity, your ultimate purpose, your ultimate meaning, and your ultimate satisfaction. You'll never find it anywhere else. You were made to know God. You were made to know him. John 17, verse three says, this is eternal life. What is eternal life? He says that you know God. Jesus Christ, the one who he sent. This is what it means to be fully alive, to find your purpose, to find your freedom, to find your joy, to find ultimate pleasure. You won't find it under the sun. Hear the wisdom of Solomon. None of those things will give you ultimate meaning and pleasure and fulfillment. You have to look beyond the sun. And God himself has placed himself under the sun and taken on human flesh. Why? So that you and I could know him. We don't find this through human wisdom. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, you didn't figure this out for human wisdom. There's no philosopher that broke through the atmosphere of human reason and said, I know God now. Left to our own devices, man was helpless. Right? It's this existential, that's the right word, um, existential, yeah, I need a little X in there, um, dilemma, is how can man know God? We can't, left to our own devices, and go to a foreign country, and you just watch, look at ancient civilizations, just man trying to come up with a God in their own making, trying to, to legitimize their existence, 
It's this existential dilemma, and the only cure for it is if God himself speaks. God speaks to his creation. Hamlet writes himself into the play, or Shakespeare writes himself into the play as Hamlet, so that you can know the one who made you and created you and find your ultimate purpose, your ultimate identity, your ultimate joy, your ultimate pleasure. We didn't figure this out from human wisdom. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, but it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That it's not human wisdom that got you there. It's the wisdom of God through the folly of what we preach, that God became a man and humbled himself. It was the wisdom of God made manifest for us so that you and I can know the one who made us and have an intimate relationship with him. Where man is constantly trying to look beyond the heavens, to justify their existence. And the good news of the gospel is heaven came down, right? We don't have to keep looking. We don't have to keep searching. We don't have to look at other planets. We don't have to have hearings about aliens in Congress, right? I've seen the movies. Every single time they show up, they eat us. It's the first thing they do. Like, we don't have to to figure out what's gonna happen, right? I've seen all the movies. That the good news of the gospel is God came from the heavens and came down and made himself known to us. He has given us his word. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to us by the prophets but in these last days, Hebrews 1, he spoke to us by his son. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He has made purification for our sins. God has made himself known to us. 2 Timothy 3 says that the scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation that God has spoken and faith comes by hearing his word and it's his word that makes us wise to know who we are, to know who he is and to know how we can be made right with him. And here's the thing, because of Jesus, now everything has meaning. If you wanna know the book of Ecclesiastes in a snapshot, it's the foundation, it's it's the bottom row of the Jenga blocks. If you get this right, then everything else matters. But if you don't get this right, then nothing else matters. That if you realize that you're made to know God and make him known in this life, then everything matters. Your job, your parenting, those mundane moments where you're rocking your baby at 2 a.m. going, how does this matter? Is this going to matter in the end? It all suddenly matters. If you leverage all that God has given you, if you go to work and you raise your kids and you go to school and you, you gain intelligence and you go to work for the glory of God and for the kingdom of God, then suddenly all of those things now have meaning. Why? Because they're making a difference in the kingdom. 
But if you get this wrong and you just leverage your life for the glory of self and for the glory of your own name and you're here one minute and you try to immortalize yourself and you're gone the next, we all know where this creation and this eternity is going, where everyone bows at the feet of Jesus. And those who know him and love him worship him forever. And those who don't experience his justice forever. But Solomon says, heed my wisdom. If you get this right, then everything else now has meaning. And you're like, how do you rock a baby or change a diaper for the glory of God? Who's, who's, being, who's glorifying God because of this? You are, right? When you're sitting there, God, God, help me to steward what you've given me for your glory. God, I don't deserve this little gift, but you've given it to me. Thank you. And you're worshiping him and glorifying him in the mundane moments of your life. The only reason I can wake up and enjoy a cup of coffee like I did this morning is because God is on the throne. If God's not on the throne, then all of that's meaningless. It doesn't matter. There's no point to it. Paul says, if Christ is not risen, then our faith is worthless. He says, eat, drink, be, be merry, for tomorrow we die. Um, I haven't seen the movie, but Tyler showed me a clip of this at the end of the Mario movie uh, that just came out. Uh, this won't spoil the movie. This is in the credits. There's this little cute little star that shows up and obviously has a voice and can talk and stuff, but um, is a perfect illustration of this. And says, well, the movie's over. We're about to fade into the black void, right? I guess that was it. I guess that was all it was meant for. And then this little star's kind of depressed and it goes, okay, I guess we'll play a song, right? And that's life. If we're just here for a moment and gone the next and there's no God and we're just born, we live, we rinse, we repeat, we die, then you might as well just enjoy it for all you can because it doesn't matter. But Solomon says, if you know God, if you put your faith in Jesus, if you leverage your life for what you were made for, to know God and to make him known, then everything now matters. Make profit for the glory of God and for the good of the people around you. Conduct your business for the glory of God and the people around you. Raise your kids for the glory of God and for their joy in the Lord. Go to work, go to school, do all of these things. They now have incredible meaning, amen? This is what we're going to see as we go through this series. Jesus says in Matthew 12 that someone greater than Solomon is here. The greater wisdom is here and it's found in Jesus. So what do we do? Paul tells us now because of Christ, because of what he's done, if we leverage all that he's given us for the work of the Lord, he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in what? In the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The beautiful thing about the gospel is this spirit, pneuma, this it's the same word for breath and wind, has breathed life into the meaningless, has allowed us to know our creator and make him known. And now everything we do has meaning if we do it for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, I pray that as we study this book, Father, that we would come to it with humble hearts. God, it is not gonna be pretty as we talk about um, so many things that in my heart of hearts, I often try to put my hope in. God, in legacy, I wanna be remembered. God, in striving. Father, I, I, my heart likes possessions and shiny new things. But God, any of those things, my own name being remembered, stuff, quality of life, God, none of those things matter if I'm not pursuing those and using those for the glory of your name. So God, help me to not fall into that trap of wanting to be remembered for my own namesake. 
God, help me to leverage my life as um, John the Baptist prayed, that you must increase and I must decrease. God, to leverage my life for what matters. And in that day, when I get to stand before you, God, that other people would be able to stand and say, the Lord used you. When you asked him for wisdom to take what he's given you and to leverage it so that other people would know me, the Lord used you so that I can know him. God, may that be true of all of us and may that be true of our church. Help us to be a people who understand these realities in which you created the world and God, that we would find wisdom. Thank you that you've given meaning to life under the sun for those that know you and make you known. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.